Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten. We are still, still the only podcast that we're aware of that talks about horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a shtick. It's a niche. But it's a lot of fucking fun. And I think we're just going to stick with it for as long as we can. I am joined, as always, by my my friend, my business partner, uh, the light of my life, Matthew Donato. How you doing over there, buddy? I'm good. We're uh, you know we're out, we're out of the chaos. We're into the end of the year. Now we can think about the chaos of board season, and that's fun too. But I don't know. Let's let's see what happens in the future. Yeah, you have to do like you would think. Oh, the the horror critics stuff kind of winds down at the end of October because most of the releases have hit, and you've also got like all of the year end stuff. Is you've watched 200 movies at this point, so you kind of got a sense of it. But you vote on the Critics' Choice Awards, so you also have to go all see the real movies and have a vote on that as well, correct? Yeah, like, I, I have seen almost, like, 200 movies this year, but, like, half of them are dog shit indie horror movies, like Gynecology Massacre 27. So, like, that doesn't help me for my Critics' Choice voting. Uh, so, yeah, I have a lot of work to do uh, <laughs> with the path I have chosen, but it is what I do to myself, and I, I can only blame me. I'm still waiting for my uh, Gynecology Massacre 7 uh, for your consideration screener to come in. I hope they do discs this year. Fingers crossed. God damn it. <laughs> well, Donata, do you want to introduce tonight's guest, a repeat return guest on the podcast? Yeah, they're a filmmaker. You know them from their work that they have done. Uh, maybe Tragedy Girls. I don't know. Maybe something else like Patrick that has been on the podcast before. Or maybe from an upcoming movie. It's a Wonderful Knife. Uh, Mr. Tyler McIntyre, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always good to be back and then see uh, uh, how to uh, irritate uh, Monogal. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I mean, I, spoiler alert right out of the jump, I really liked your movie. So that's two. That is that is two. That's Tragedy Girls and It's a Wonderful Knife that I really liked and Patchwork that I didn't vibe with. And so unfortunately, I think that puts me solidly in the pro Tyler McIntyre category. for. for and now. you're sure you watched It's a Wonderful Knife, right? Not It's a Wonderful Life? Okay, yeah. I did. But the, the I... I all night long, uh, Justin Long's teeth were just like flashing in my dream. So I know that I watched the right movie. I mean, that's been happening to me since March. So um, I, I totally get you there. So I want to ask you, uh, you previously, I'm going to recommend folks. Um, Tyler joined us in October of 2020 for episode 27. He talked about The Devil Lives Here, uh, which was a great pick. And we had a really good conversation. So if you want to hear kind of our typical introduction about how Tyler got into horror and you know how he became a filmmaker, all that kind of stuff. I'd recommend you go back to October 2020. Uh, we've got a whole conversation there for your listening pleasure. For this one, you know, we wanted to invite you to come talk about what's on your plate a little bit. And obviously, the, the biggest thing going on in your world right now is It's a Wonderful Knife. So I want to start because I've got a, a Christmas holiday filmmaker and I've got the reigning king of Christmas horror, Matt Donato, in the same room at the same time. Tyler, what are your thoughts on uh, on Christmas horror? I love Christmas horror. Um, I definitely grew up kind of having a bit more of a bias uh, towards the darker Christmas movies. You know, like, uh, you know, my 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 mom really likes stuff like A Christmas Story. And, you know, and I appreciate the horror of like that licking the pole scene in that movie. Mm -hmm. But um, I prefer Black Christmas, you know, um, if you're going to go with, with a Bob Clark classic. Uh, and uh, I really loved um, stuff like... Um, you know, like the Richard Donner Scrooged and, uh, and, you know, a nightmare before Christmas and stuff like that. Like, you know, things that were just had a little bit of that edge and darkness to them. And, uh, you know, as a result, like I've just, you know, always been wanting to make a Christmas horror movie. And even like, you know, recently I always bring up, um, you know, like, uh, Chris Peckover's like better watch out and, and things like that. It's like movies from the last couple of years that I've really loved. 
and so I, I think it's a it's a it's a good place because um you know there's been a few kind of on the indie side coming out the last couple of years, but I haven't seen like a ton of ones that I've I've loved, and um and so I, I was you know I was excited to get a chance to to make one when when uh, it's wonderful knife kind of came across my desk so. Did not a rebuttal on the Christmas horror. Why am I going to rebuttal anything? You know I love Christmas horror. That is very much in the same vein. I mean, uh, honestly, like, let alone Christmas horror. Like, one of my favorite slashers is Black Christmas. So that that's it is a reigning champion for me no matter what. And that has driven my love of everything holiday that is bastardized in Christmas horror. I think it's the best holiday to do horror films with because there's so much of the commercial aspect. There's so much of the, the overt cheeriness of Hallmark movies and stuff like that forced down our throat that... It requires a bit of an antidote. It requires a little bit of pushback because as much as we want life to be like that, the snow globe, we want everything to be perfect. It's not. And I think the horror genre understands that so well. And the horror genre, especially when you get into the horror, like horror side of Christmas, you know, like there's the fucking zombie elves. There's, there's like everything, like, God, it's it's good. I need that. That's what I need in my holiday. Yeah, I mean, and besides, like, aren't you? Isn't your favorite movie like Black Coat's Daughter? Don't you love like Frozen? You're you know, wrong, like, Matt. No? You're talking to the wrong Matt. No, 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 not you. Uh, yeah, yeah, not you. Never you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is. So there is. I, I just. I well outside of the scope of the podcast, but I just watched The Holdovers uh, a few weeks ago, which is if you haven't had a chance to see it, is an absolutely wonderful. I'm not always. I'm kind of an uh, yeah, Alexander yeah. It's like Black Coat's right? Daughter if there was joy. You know? Correct. Yeah. If it was Black Coat's Daughter, if people had hope for humanity, and what it made me realize though is that because all of my shit is purgatorial things, anyways, it's like that liminal state sort of thing. I liked The Holdovers weirdly for all the reasons that I like The Black Coat's Daughter, which is the notion of this sort of seasonal in between time. Um, and there's a lot of movies that kind of like hone in on the notion of how not to get too sad, but like this, the holidays can be a really tough time for people. And I think that a lot of movies, horror movies and otherwise do a good job of kind of honing in on that experience for folks. So that is sadly enough, my kind of Christmas movie is, is more of like the, I don't know what to do with myself from December 20th to like December 31st kind of Christmas stuff. Uh, as somebody who stayed, did not go home multiple times in college. Cause I was just like, I, you know, I don't want to make that trip. It, it rings very true for me. Yeah, that's right. I killed the vibe. Yeah, I, I, well, I don't have no response to that. What do you want me to say? Like, oh, yeah, I watch Inside with my family every year. I loved it. I loved it. Well, let me ask uh, Tyler if I can a little bit. Um, one of the things I'm curious about with uh, It's a Wonderful Knife is that I know up to this point, and I know there's a ton of projects that you're working on and not working on that don't, that don't get made at any given point. And so what shows up on IMDb, what actually gets made is not representative of your body of work. But I know, you know Kennedy is, is uh, Michael Kennedy, your screenwriter's up and coming in the horror genre has done a lot of really great movies over the last couple of years. It's different for you to not be working on a script that you worked on yourself. Correct. That's a little bit of a departure for you as a filmmaker. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, because I am a writer myself and um, you know, write with, with a partner as well as myself, uh, you know, my own stuff. I, I do, uh, you know, I, I don't, I've never felt super compelled to just kind of be like a writer director, you know, like somebody who can only direct stuff that they've written. I, I do like to have a hand in shaping the story, but you know that doesn't. It's not you know mutually exclusive. Um, whereas I do know people who are kind of like that, who who like can't build a, a um, you know a project without having a hand in the writing. Like I know I spoke to like Mickey Keating at one point, and he was kind of sort of saying that that was his thing. And I uh, I've never really had that. Like I, uh, but if I'm going to direct something that I haven't written, I try and look for things that are a bit unlike stuff that I um, would write, you know, and, and, and I think at a glance, it's a wonderful knife, you know, might seem like a, a like a Tyler movie in that there's some of the same tricks in it, but um, it, uh, it definitely has like this kind of sincerity at the heart of it 
that is a bit unlike some of the others. Like if you look at Patrick or Tragedy Girls, you'll see that, you know, like they have a relatively cynical or ironic kind of, um, you know, uh, twist to a lot of what's going on. And this, you know, has, um, you know, like a twisted kind of main sort of high concept behind the plot. But other than that, it's very sincere. Um, And that was part of the challenge for me was I really wanted to, you know, make an uplifting slasher movie, which is inherently there's not a ton of. And, uh, and, you know, and doing that in a Christmas movie, you know, movie wrapper, I thought was pretty fun. And then a lot of the satire instead was going to come from taking that cheeriness and that kind of hallmark sort of vibe that um, Donato was mentioning. And then, you know, uh, building that stuff up in order to tear it down and kind of give you a different perspective on it. And that was a lot of what, you know, was kind of drew me the project um, because it was making moves in a way that that um, were not how I would write them. And, and but I wanted to see if I could be the one to tell them. And when you're when you're going with something that is partially homage, um, you know, certainly very steeped in the it's a wonderful life story that we all know, uh, strongly referenced throughout the course of the film, which I love, just like just get right to it. You know, hey, they know what the movie is. We know what the movie is. I'm curious, is that does that create challenges for you as a filmmaker when you're going and saying, like, how do I reference something without downplaying it when I'm recognizing like the importance of this movie to a lot of people, does that become kind of a tight line where you're like, everybody knows what to expect. I don't want to subvert those expectations, but I also don't want to like just recreate it note for note. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not a, yeah, it definitely isn't a beat for beat retelling, you know, like uh, of that, you know, very classic film. Um, and you're also not going to beat that movie. You know what I mean? Like, like there's no real, like, you're not going to sit down and, you know, no one, you know, when you, when you, you're not going to beat Frank Capra. Um, and, uh, and and so it's it's kind of stupid to try, but you can try and give a different um, spin on on something that that is you know like it's it's like you can cook a dish that is like a signature dish from another filmmaker in, in a different way, and that's um, you know kind of what I was trying to do. You know, so like there's there's nods to it, um, uh, but not um, it's not trying to play the same game. Like even that you know the magical kind of wish that sort of kicks everything off is what people often associate with. Um, uh, it's a wonderful life as um but in our movie like that that's like page 2030 you know like not you know like like i mean it's longer than our whole running time of our movie you know into it's a wonderful um life before that even happens like yeah. and 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 it's kind of it just is a very good ending and and um but it, you know that movie i i think i've sort of said this before in, in other kind of discussions but like it it owes so much to christmas carol and so i was trying to be about as beholden uh, to it's a wonderful life as that movie is to a Christmas Carol. And, um, you know, so, so, uh, you know, we were trying to just kind of do our own thing and make, and make a bit of, you know, more of a, of a, you know, wintry roller coaster ride. And that's, um, you know, uh, I, I don't think we can get too preoccupied with it because we weren't going to, you know, you know, it's, uh, it's similar to like, I know Totally Killer came out this year and they have a similar, you know, thing, but like they're not going to be back to the future, you know, like, and I don't think they, you yeah. know, so it's, it's a little bit crazy to try. And it's similar to like Happy Death Day and, and, uh, you know, like that's a really good movie. And so, but like Groundhog Day is one of the best movies ever made. You know, yeah. and so so, but there's a reason that you can kind of play in it in that with a bit of a postmodern spin, and it's kind of um, you know it's a fun ride because you already have people uh, wanting to see a spin on that. You know, if they love those movies, or or you know, but you already know that this kind of premise works and and kind of holds water in a way that you're often wondering with with more original premises. So uh, one of my things I really liked about it is the satire aspect of it. Of it is a satire Hallmark movies, as you've kind of said. You know, Lifetime Hallmark. Let's say the cheery Christmas film. And, you know, you're, you go in expecting a slasher. So you go in expecting something along the lines of Scream, some, some of the seminal classics. But it starts like, you know, you flipped on Netflix and it's like the Christmas Prince or some shit. And all of a sudden it takes that turn. 
So in doing that kind of satire, number one, like I hope people are prepared for it because that's very intentional. And like, that is the thing I hope people notice. But number two, were you looking at, were there specific films, let's say you were looking at to be like, all right, what can we, what can we draw from to replicate that kind of essence? Yeah, we definitely pulled a lot of references from like those, uh, you know, films. And the thing is like, I used to work on those movies a lot. Like, um, you know, like when I was an editor, um, like I edited a number of indie movies and that was kind of my bread and butter. But then, you know, there was a period where I was doing um, sort of, uh, you know, a few movies of the week and I cut a number of Christmas movies for Hallmark. And uh, that was interesting. I, I did like, you know, a lot of thrillers for a lifetime as well. And, and, you know, you put those together, you're, you know, you're kind of the ballpark, but, um, but there's, you know, like they, they kind of have a, you know, they're um, generally speaking, quite, quite tiny budgets and, um, you know, but they, they try and make, you know, a little Christmas in every frame is kind of what they sort of like to say. And so I wanted that sort of vibe to it, but like, you know, like I like a good quality version of that with a little edge, you know, like, and, and try and do things like elevate the performances to that timber, you know, like um, where everything is just a little heightened, but, but it's like Joel McHale, you know? So it's like Joel McHale is a Hallmark dad. So, you know, there's something a little off, you know, and, uh, and there's a little of inherent kind of a twist to it. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, they, you know, actually, you know, I, I was trying to make people kind of tune into it a little bit and hopefully they get the satire in the first few minutes. But the thing is like, once, you know, you have this small town hucksters, uh, you know, real estate scheme gets spurned. And then instead of, you know, um, you know, uh, instead of kind of going off uh, or moving out of town, he ends up, you know, murdering everybody. You probably know you're in a different film. And then, and then, uh, the next 20 minutes of the movie are more interesting to me um, and some of the more interesting in the movie in that you're kind of with a character who is now graded, who used to buy into that, that cheeriness and that positivity. And then now is in a different place headspace and you're with them being like, this is gross, you know? And um, that that's a kind of a fun space to be in. Um, and so th that's the type of stuff that, that appealed to me. And, and I even managed to get like a movie that I edited uh, like in the, the, the family is watching a movie I, I cut called a, a gift wrapped Christmas um, that, that I, you know, but again, it's like, I, I do respect those movies. Like they're often yeah. brought up in such a prejudicial way, but like, I mean, the, the fact remains that like, you know, like, uh, I mean the, the first movie of the week I cut, you know, the weekend it came out, they used to do like those old Nielsen ratings and it, it was the most watched thing of the weekend aside from football, which is like, how is the, you know, like, you know, more, you know, like what's like 10 times the, you know, Staples Center watched that movie on Saturday, you know, like, like it's, you know, like it's not even a, you know, they are, they do have an audience, you know, and in a way that I respect that. And I respect that craft, you know, the way that I respect like, you know, Harlequin romance novels. And um, it's just, you know, and, and a lot of the directors I worked with, I worked with um, a woman named uh, Rita Grabiak a number of times who, who has, has directed a lot of the more popular ones for Hallmark and Lifetime, but like, you know, came from TV and directed like some of the most badass episodes of your favorite shows, like Battlestar Galactica and like Lost and like all these things. And 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 you can learn a lot of lessons as a filmmaker from somebody like that because, you know, they'll they'll like stare down a 13 page shooting day and be like and, and then come out of it, you know, on time, you know, like having got a bunch of stuff that looks great. And, and you're just like, how the hell do you do that? You know? And so as an editor, I got to sit shotgun for a number of movies where I saw, you know, her pull off kind of minor miracles with, with good performances and not get crushed by the pressure of it. And that was, you know, um, you know, uh, things that I learned from that are, you know, kind of give me a skill set to, to make a lot of, you know, movies on, on indie budgets. 
Yeah, like, and none of this is to disparage the movie of the week stuff or the Christmas movies yeah, that you're talking about, too, because, like, I love the horror crossover with that genre because a friend of the show and two-time guest, Michael Verratti, like, has credits on Hallmark Christmas movies and Netflix sure, Christmas yeah. movies. So, like, it's just so funny to me that all these horror people have these other, like, side credits of, like, oh, yeah, I wrote this, that cheesy Christmas movie your mom loves. <laughs> totally. And it's and it was funny kind of making a movie in Vancouver where they shoot a lot of those things, like, and having crew that, like, came up, you know, on that side or did, you know, did a tour of duty you know like and and being like oh man i'm so pumped to make one of these that's that i can throw in a couple of jokes you know like, you know and especially like the you know uh like we got it you know um the art team in particular was like pumped about it because they're like no no we can do this crazy you know and uh and and love the idea that they got to set up christmas decorations one day and then in the same location fuck everything up the next day and it's uh you know it was kind of liberating in a way and tyler you were talking talking about before and after type stuff um Earlier, you mentioned the fact that maybe people would see a little bit of Tyler McIntyre. The other things that you've done, Patchwork and in Tragedy Girls in this film. What struck me when I saw like kind of the, the connection between your previous work and this one is I think of you as somebody who's really, really good at working with young actresses. I think of both Alexander Shipp and Brianna Hildebrand in Tragedy Girls, which is one of my favorite on-screen friendships and just like incredible dynamic performances from the two of them. And then I think of Jane Whittup and Jess McLeod and Jess McLeod in particular, they blew me away. They were so funny. That performance kind of came out of left field for me. I wasn't expecting that character to be that rich in, in any movie, let alone, you know, one that is working with the conventions of a Christmas movie. So I'm curious, you know, what other, other than just really good casting, um, what you think of with regards to like what you think makes it successful for you to work with younger actors in order to find these like authentic moments. Um, and, you know, nothing, Nothing can can grate a little bit more than, you know, dialogue for teenagers that was written by somebody in their 30s and 40s. Authenticity is really fucking tricky when you're dealing with teenage characters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, having never been a, um, you know, a, a teenage girl, uh, it, it is very difficult to, you know, like have tackled a number of stories that that center around that experience. And I try and prioritize finding um you know, performers that I, that are, can be really partners in that and kind of shaping that and, and being, you know, um, and, and, and being a, uh, a good sounding board and are strong enough in their own voices to, to kind of like, you know, point, point that out and, and you are or point out when things are getting a little, a little inauthentic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, at the same time, like, you know, I've been fortunate in that my films are a little stylized, you know, like, so, so like you can get away with a certain timber of, of, or a certain tone of, um, you know, things are a bit exaggerated and, and people can get a bit pithy and things are, are, are always are kind of heightened in a way. And so that's, um, uh, you know, I think it lets us off the hook for certain things, but, but you, you, you can't, you know, rest on that all the time and you have to, you know, it is, it is a constant kind of battle. Um, and I find that like building these ensembles, um, you know, is, is, is the, where most of the work is, you know? And, um, and so like, fortunately, uh, Jane Whittup was, somebody that I'd seen in, in yellow jackets, um, which was a, a really kind of fun surprise last year for me uh, of, of a show that I wasn't, you know, I didn't really know about. And then someone recommended it to me and I loved it. Um, that first season was a lot of fun. And, and so I had Jane kind of on, on a list of young actors that I had was sort of considering for stuff. And they did a really great read of that scene where, um, uh, where, uh, Winnie first appears in the, in the kind of alternate world and really like landed that, that, um, you know, kind of tone of, of without falling, you know, too far into camp without, and, and felt, you know, it was very authentic and got kind of how, you know, um, 
how uh, got the gravity of it, and and we decided that it was you know such a strong weave that we kind of build the younger cast around them, and so um, uh, you know and it took us a long time to find uh, Bernie, uh, who's who uh, Jess McLeod plays, and I remember like I'd seen Jess in um, um, One of Us Is Lying, which is like a Peacock series. Um, and, uh, and, and they're kind of a, a bit of a Trojan horse in that too. Like they ended up, uh, they had a small, or they were like a kind of a supporting part in the, in the, in, in, in the kind of the pilot. And then that part just got bigger and bigger over. And then, then they're like on the poster for season two kind of thing, like almost like took over the show as a favorite. Um, and, and, uh, you know, as somebody who's a very smart performer and, and can play the type of eccentricity we needed, um, without being too, you know, like, um, uh, you know, two out there. And, and, and we had, we had, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd, I'd spoken to, um, uh, uh, some other performers who, you know, and, and just seemed to be kind of like the right, the right fit for, for it. And, and then they had such awesome chemistry together that it really allowed us to, um, you know, make that relationship, you know, even more foregrounded than it was in the, um, uh, in the, in the script. And then it, it also, um, you know, uh, a lot of like the subtextual stuff that was going on in Michael's script and became more textual kind of based on the type of, you know, chemistry they had. Well, I was going to ask actually based on that, because you revealed in the Beyond Fest Q&A that that happened, you know, the chemistry mm -hmm. on set dictated how the character dynamics would go forward. So, you know, as a filmmaker, as a director, how is that to deal with where you are filming a movie one way where you have the roadmap is in front of you, you see exactly what you're trying to do and how that's going to go. And then all of a sudden that roadmap gets a little like misshapen, let's say, and like kind of switched around because you're just seeing something naturally happen on set and you go, Nope, we got to make that happen in the movie too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it was, it was um, a little tricky in that we had um, like, I kind of got a, a bit of a head start on it because you could sort of see it happening in, in, in rehearsal and, and, and to their um, credit, you know, like, like, um, you know, like Jane's only 20 years old, you know, like, and it's a, it's a like number, you know, number one on the call sheet. It's a, you know, one of their first like lead things. And, to have the courage to be like, Hey, no, like we need to change like the structure of the movie, you know, like, you know, or the main thrust of the narrative, you know, cause I'm, you know, we're feeling things here, you know, is, is, um, you know, I, uh, you know, kind of a brave like assertion, you know, and, and, and so like, uh, like Jane and Jess were both very aware of it. And, you know, I, I, and, and I'd sort of been seeing kind of similar things and, and, uh, you know, and, and even coming off tragedy girls, which is like, um, has a similar sort of, uh, you know, um, relationship at its core that is just much more coded, you know, like, like it's, it's more like, you know, these girls and their relationship it, like kind of trumps everything else. And, um, you know, I, but, but like at the time, like, you know, it, it was, you know, even this is only, uh, you know, five, six years ago, it, it was not as easy to get, um, things to go to the next level, you know, like, like just in terms of finding just distribution for them, you know, and stuff. And, and, and it was, um, whereas, you know, we were kind of in a position where, where like we could, we could push for some of those things and, and the studio was, you know, very supportive. And, um, and so, you know, we, you know, no one, we didn't really get any pushback. We were able to kind of shape things and, 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 but we did, it did require, require some course correction on our behalf, you know, like once we kind of, you know, realize this, you know, we're doing some downhill maneuvers to, you know, get the edit to kind of support it and, and, and uh, make sure that we were sort of picking performances to kind of push people um, towards it. But I, I, I like that it's a subtle build to a more uh, mm -hmm. kind of romantic place. And I want to talk about the violence too, um, before we leave your film and talk about the film you picked for us on the show. Um, I got, I, I, 
it's a weird thing to to point out, but the first one of the first kills that we see happens through a window, and I can't I couldn't remember the last time that I saw sort of like two dimensional violence that's happening like left to right on the screen. It always feels like it's coming back or forward, where it's just sort of like people moving against a window, and there's a knife fight, and someone's getting killed. I thought that was really cool, and it made me realize probably part of the challenge of shooting a, a Christmas horror movie is sort of like laying your stake in the ground early on as to how violent this thing is going to be. Because there's going to be people that are like, no amount of violence is the right amount of violence. And there's going to be people that are like, what the fuck? It's still a Christmas movie. What are you doing? So like that first kill in the film is pretty gnarly. That sort of felt like you sort of setting expectations out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, we, I definitely didn't want to overshoot it. Like, like, um, you know, I, I tend to make horror movies that are a little bit more, like a hardcore horror fan would find them interesting. Um, you know, like it, it, it conceptually, if nothing else. And, um, but they could watch it with a friend who's not a horror fan. Um, and uh, that's a, you know, a weird niche to be in because I do have friends who are more, and, and other filmmakers that I know who, who are always like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is the scary one, you know? And I find that that's like just not, um, you know, something that I tend to gravitate as much towards. So, um, you know, like my kind of rule of thumb was I wanted it to be, things to be, kind of, you know, scary. And, and, and you're balancing that with some amount of, um, uh, you know, some amount of like budget concerns, you know, like, like it takes time to do a scary sequence. Right. And, and it, it really sucks up the day. And we had not a very long schedule on this. We had 18 days. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's short, you know, like a five day shorter than tragic girls, you know, like, um, like it's, uh, you know, it's 25% less, you know, or whatever, like this a lot less time. And so I was trying to, you know, pick what's important and you had to kind of design the sequences around what the time you had to do them. And, um, but I knew I wanted it, you know, kind of fun, number one, scary, number two, you know, like, and, you know, like I, I want you to have a good time with this and it's a little creepy, but like, I don't want to ruin your Christmas, you know? Um, yeah. and, uh, and that was, you know, sort of the, the, the needle I was trying to thread there. Cause I, and, um, you know, and, and you can see that, like, I imagine it's probably not going to be scary enough or hardcore enough for some people. Um, but I also, you know, would point to the fact you saw a movie called it's a wonderful knife. Yeah. And if you're going to stake your claim with a kill, I mean, you killed the cigarette smoking man in this film, which my, you know, my wife and I were like, she pulled out her phone and was taking photos to send to a friend that was like, this actor's still alive. I had no idea that because everybody, everybody grew up watching X-Files. So it was just like, it was one of those cool moments where I was like, I can't, I'm so glad that this person is still out there making movies. Yeah. I mean, I was pumped to, you know, uh, get him like, uh, you know, I had a couple of people, uh, kind of on my list early, like, uh, like Catherine Isabel, who, who's, um, uh, you know, from like Ginger Snaps and like, you know, um, Freddy versus Jason and like, you know, kind of a, a staple of, of horror. And, and, and for a moment there, we were trying to get like Michael Ironside to come in for that part. Mm. Um, and, and I, you know, I had a good conversation with him about it and, and, and we just couldn't quite work out the schedule. So it was, um, we ended up uh, sort of pivoting to William B. Davis, who was a strong kind of second choice. Cause you know, I mean, I, I grew up, you know, watching him and seeing, you know, like you know, obviously X-Files and Stargate and, you know, like he's, he's a, you know, a bit of a, uh, uh, um, a legend within uh, Vancouver, especially because he also like an acting teacher and kind of like knows, you know, he's really tied in that way. And he w isn't doing a ton these days, you know, so, so it was good to get him to kind of like, he almost came out of retirement to do this, you know, in, in a, in a is, was the way that his kind of reps were sort of phrasing it, but, um, but uh, it was a very soft retirement. I'm sure you could still book him, but, yeah. um, but uh, you know, uh, yeah. And was a sport about it, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, it was going, you know, and you have, you know, Joe McHale and Justin Long and, and then uh, Hannah Huggins, who was who uh, playing the Kara, the, the daughters in the same scene, whose first day on a movie set. So it was uh, um, a, a real wild card of a shooting day for me. And, uh, you know, we also had like, 
know, our first action scene, our first appearance of the angel, our first appearance of Justin Long, then another four-page scene that was not even that same scene. And it was a lot of it was a lot to do. Fangoria was visiting that day. It was we blowing up a snowman. There was a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on. A lot of balls in the air. That's and um, yeah. Was, it, was that a pun because snowmen are made of snowballs? And they, yeah, I, I, it, unintentional pun, but I, I do, I do, agree, I do like that. And um, but yeah, but, but William B. Davis was, um, you know, uh, 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 I was glad that he was able to get it, get in there. And you know, I mean, we were able to kill him in a different way other than him dying of cancer slowly. Yes, thank you for that. I do have to ask because I I love the renaissance Justin Long is having in horror. I mean, alone from the Barbarian, which everyone is talking about, um, House of Darkness, or I forget the name, but he was in another movie right after that too, where he plays the kind of smarmy guy with that kind of twist. If you haven't seen Barbarian, go see it. I won't ruin that. But you know, Justin Goosebumps. Long is doing he's doing goose. You got right. He's doing he's doing goosebumps. So like he's really coming back into the horror genre way more because again, unfortunately, he's tied to another genre uh, franchise that we won't mention here. Um, but Justin Long, like being this character in this movie that we don't have to tell too much about, but let's just say it's not his typical role. Was he always like number one on your list? Were there other people list uh, kind of like you're going after? Or how'd that work? Oh yeah, it was a long process actually. Um, yeah, we we because um, it was written, it took a long time to find. Um, you know, we had a lot of people kind of earlier in the process that we sort of went out, and it was just a weird time because like the strike was sort of happening, and and we were trying to figure out when we were shooting, and so without like super specific dates, it's a little harder to get, um, you know, bigger bigger names. And then by the time we actually had figured out the names, we had you know we had um, Jane and Joel on earlier, and then so we were waiting to figure out who Waters was, and then. Um, and then, you know, Justin was on the list kind of earlier on, but, but he was tied up with Goosebumps. And then it became apparent that, oh, since we're in Vancouver and he's wrapping Goosebumps up and they've shot most of his stuff, we might be able to, you know, get him kind of, a, you know, on, on the tail end of that schedule. And um, and then so he kind of was ushered to the front of the line, especially after we cast Sean Deppner, who plays uh, his younger brother uh, in, in this version. And we like, um, you know, who's who was really funny and could, you know, um, could kind of go toe to toe with him comedically and not a ton of people can do that. And so uh, that was, uh, you know, that made it so clear. And, um, but, you know, we, we went through a, di- a bunch of different things. Like we rewrote it as a, as a woman for, for a moment there. And, and then uh, originally like Henry was supposed to be kind of in his fifties. And then like Buck was, was like his, um, his like son. And then, so, we, but then once we got into the idea of, of Sean and, um, and Justin, then they kind of became like a brother sort of relationship, which I think works pretty well for the, for the st- scope of things. The last question before we go and talk about the other film. Um, I have it in my mind that one of the most validating and fun moments you can have as a director is where you do a shot that switches from 4-3 to 2-3-5-1. You do that at the beginning of the movie. Tell me that's like, that's got to be the best feeling in the world as a director when you get to do that aspect change like in camera. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's actually uh, a sixty-nine to two-three-five, uh, uh, but uh, you know that's uh, uh, you know, hey, you know, you, you can't win them all. Um, that's why I'm a film uh, critic and not a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah but uh, but yeah, it's uh, you know, it's definitely a. Uh, uh, I mean, I love aspect ratio changes. I, I think that's um, super fun and something's a little bit underutilized. Um, you know, when you're doing something that's a bit of a movie within a movie, and we have a couple of those in this, like we have, you know, the Hallmark film that I mentioned, but also um, we have the uh, uh, two different kind of commercials in this that are like fake commercials that take place within the movie. And I always have some element of that. Like there's, you know, like Tragedy Girls made a ton of video content and, uh, mm-hmm. and then there, you know, um, even in Patchwork, I had a couple of like, you know, parody little clips in there. And just something that that I, I'm, I'm often kind of writing into things. And um, just because I think they're fun to make is kind of one-off sort of palate cleansers. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I always think of, uh, um, 
you know, that moment in like Butch Cast and the Sundance Kid, where, where it's like that sepia tone that goes into into color as like, oh man, the world just opens up. And it's not an aspect ratio change, but like it's it, yeah. it's the same sort of idea. And um, and I thought it was kind of fun to sort of have the com- commercial kind of end um, in this with this sort of um, larger shot of the town, and then have that open up into an actual you know thing. And it, and it works, you know, works well, and and um, or, or seem to work well, and you know, when you see it in, the, in a cinema at least. And um, uh, yeah, it's it, it's fun. I, I know, like uh, you know, you see something like Scott Pilgrim or something like that, where the you know the aspect ratio is changing all the time, you know. And but I, um, you know, it's it's kind of fun to. To, to try out those things formally and um, especially when you have like the the um, partners and uh, you know like producers that are kind of supportive of that sort of thing nice all right well Tyler we're gonna ask you to take off your filmmaker hat and we're just gonna let you be a film fan for a little bit so we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we're gonna talk about a horrible way to die. Hey everyone Matt Monagle here. You know, over the last few years, we've learned that everything digital, from streaming films to our favorite websites, can be taken from us in the blink of an eye. That's why it's so important to support independent journalism at a time like this. When you contribute to Certified Forgotten, 100% of your support goes to our writers, which empowers them to write the kind of niche, non-SEO content we all wish we could see more of in the industry. So if you're in a position to support independent journalism this holiday season, visit www.patreon.com slash certified forgotten. All right, welcome back. So this week on the episode, we are talking about A Horrible Way to Die. Let me give you the quick intro so those of you that haven't had a chance to watch it on Tubi uh, can go out and watch it right now. But A Horrible Way to Die is a 2010 horror film that stars A.J. Bowen, Amy Simons, and Joe Swanberg. The movie follows Sarah, played by Simons, as she works through the aftermath of her relationship with notorious serial killer, Garrick Terrell, played wonderfully, wonderfully by A.J. Bowen. When Sarah sparks a relationship with Joe Swanberg's Kevin, it appears she may be on the path to healing, but the recently escaped Garrick may have other plans for his ex-girlfriend. In addition to its mumblegore roots, A Horrible Way to Die also marks the first collaboration between director Adam Wingard and writer Simon Barrett, who you will also know from films like The Guest and You're Next. So, Tyler, uh, you have had this movie on your radar for a while. As a repeat guest, you have the benefit of basically texting Matt whenever you want and being like, the next time I show up on the show, here's the fucking movie I want to talk about. A Horrible Way to Die. Why'd you pick it? Um, well, for me, like kind of, uh, so this movie hit kind of essentially just as I was, uh, you know, in my last year of film school. And, and uh, you know, it kind of was a good example of, of like a, you know, kind of a, you know, essentially a first feature or a really early kind of feature that was contained and just such a smart way of making something at a price um, that allowed you to kind of, um, you know, essentially make make a a, a relatively complicated genre piece um, for on on a small like mumblecore uh, you know style um, budget and and I think it's a really effective little thriller. I mean, I think it, calling it a horror movie is 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 appropriate, but but you know, it's definitely uh, you know has more thriller vibes for me for my money. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, you know, was really interesting to me at the time. And, and so like seeing that and, and like, um, you know, like the signal and then ha- seeing like VHS, you know, not too far after this, and it, like it, it was very formative to me, like as somebody who was, who was, you know, trying to get their first feature um, going, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it's also a kind of over time kind of proved to be one of those linchpin movies, you know, where, where, you know, all these, uh, a lot of people involved, you know, the 
primarily the ones you, you just mentioned, have kind of gone on to do, you know, bigger things in the genre space as well as other spaces. And it's, um, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that something like this still has gone largely under the radar. You know, like I was shocked to kind of find that so few modern critics have kind of like picked it up. And that's something that, you know, Matt Donato and I sort of talked about. Uh, is it is it's nuts? Like I don't think enough people know about this movie, you know. And uh, you know, um, and so it's one of the, you know, it's kind of. Um, I think in filmmaking circles, it's relatively well known, but like I think in the general public, people don't, you know, don't don't remember it because it came out in that weird time where like it wasn't going to hit a big streamer because those weren't up and running yet, you know. Yeah. And um, and so you know, whereas I think even a couple years later, like you know, um, there were movies that are not as good as this getting pushed out in much bigger ways, and um, you know. Um, Anyway, it, it's 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 definitely worth a watch in my opinion. Yeah, and you you mentioned uh, Mumblecore. Um, you know, Amy Nicholson around the time this film was released, who was the film critic for LA Weekly at the time, uh, basically wrote the primer, what I think of as the Bible on Mumblecore, which talks about it as an offshoot with a lot of like permeable barriers between talent. The Joe Swanbergs of the world were working in like more conventional mumblecore indie comedies coming of age type stuff or, or, you know, languishing in your twenties type stuff shot in and around Austin, shout out to Austin. Uh, but then there was a whole group of, of, of films and filmmakers that were taking that ethos and bringing it into the horror scene as well. I mean, you can go through the, the, the list of stuff, a horrible way to die is in there. The innkeepers is in there. VHS is in there. The battery is in there. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff with Amy Seamitz and uh, AJ Bowen, a lot of horror films that they star in are part of the Mumblegore movement. And so I'm I'm curious when you, I know it was contentious at the time. I know a lot of filmmakers and actors were like, oh, Mumblecore, Mumblegore. And they were kind of like, I, I don't I don't love that. I don't love being kind of put in this box. So as we're thinking about this movie and sort of putting it into a historical context, Tyler, I'm, I'm curious, what, what are your feelings about the 2000s, 2010 movement of Mumblecore and Mumblegore? Do you think that it's an era that we are just too close to really wrap our heads around and appreciate what was being done? Is it, is, do we need a little bit more time to get back to it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think we're, we're getting to the point where we can put it in perspective a little bit, you know, like, um, but, uh, but, you know, a few years ago, it was really hard to tell, you know, cause like the, the battery seems uh, like, you know, a separate thing to me, even though like that would make a lot of sense, you know, um, even though, and the battery is what, 2013? Uh, yes. I don't Yeah. Like it's, it's around the general. Yeah, yeah. Like when was that, um, like when was that article written? That would have been, oh, I'd have to look it up. I don't have it open in front of me. I think that was written in or about the like 2012, 2013. Yeah. So, so like, I mean, you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know, like, and you have like the, you know, house of the devil and you know, like those sorts of things, you know, um, that, that are not like, I wouldn't, you know, like are, are related to, you know, mumble, mumble gore, but not, you know, not in the same style, you know, like they don't have all the, all that like handheld indiness of it, you know, where something like your next, I think is a little bit more clearly related, even though it's a bigger, uh, you know, a bigger budget thing in that, in that's a new, not done for like the ultra low budgets, you know, um, whereas something like the battery, like is done on an ultra low budget. And, and it's, and there is a significant difference between making a movie for half a million dollars and making a movie for like sub a hundred thousand dollars, because like what people don't quite realize is something like the battery is, uh, you know, is, is, an, is an amazing achievement, but, but you're, you know, that's done for like $10,000 or, or $7,000 or something like, you know, it's, I think it's something like that. I'm, I'm you know, but Jer like Jeremy Gardner made that movie and 6, it's, um, is what uh, Wikipedia says 6,000 for the battery. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is like, it's like by all metrics kind of illegal to do that, you know, like in terms of like, you know, even getting, you know, insurance to release a movie is $3,000, you know, like, um, so the fact that you can see that movie, you know, means that, 
you know, like it, it's a it's a miracle for a lot of things, but like nobody got paid anything to make make that movie. Therefore, we're all working for the love of it, you know, and that's the same all, pretty much up to about fifty thousand dollars. And then and then um, something, you know, then you get get you get to the point where you can pay five people minimum wage for the time it takes to make a movie, you know, and then you donate your time editing it and you take points and things like that, like the Duplass brothers, you know, um, kind of were very. I think mindful about like pushing that narrative of like the idea of like everyone's sort of like an investor, you know, they're, they're taking um, a minimum wage amount of, um, of time uh, or, or minimum wage amount for like their shooting days and then donating the other time in this deferment basis. And then if something sells then they get, you know, profit, you know, profits back. And um, that was informative to me, you know, like, um, like I, you know, produced a movie that uh, a guy named Tom Morris, who's a friend of mine, are, are producing, uh, edited a movie um, called um, Oliver Stone, which is like a stoner comedy. And we made that like on a mumblecore type budget, even though the style of it was not a mumblecore, you know, movie. Like it was, it, you know, it had, you know, a, a more specific, you know, visual style, but it had like, you know, it had um, like Bria Grant in it, you know, like, and, uh, you know, like it was, you know, uh, like we were kind of borrowing some of those, um, you know, some of those people you know, and, and some of those ideas and, and applying them to a slicker frame, because, you know, like, I do think that one of the things that was holding Mumblecore back w- was the fact that it, it, you know, once you kind of got tired of the quote unquote handheld, like uh, long lensed indie aesthetic, um, you know, there, there you know, you, you needed to, you know, expand your tools and, um, and, and, but a lot of the lessons of it stayed like the collaborative nature of it, I think is really, is really important. And the fact that like a lot of these people who were, um, you know, like it's being a, like Adam, you know, we got directed this movie, but like Simon, you know, Amy, like AJ, like all these people have gone on to be creative heads on other things. And, and, you know, like obviously, um, you know, Joe Swanberg is, you know, kind of already had his thing going at that point, but like, you know, the fact that, you, that you, you're not, um, that, you know, as a filmmaker, you're trying to get other filmmakers you know, involved in helping you make your thing and not being like threatened by that, like, like it is, is really um, a very positive kind of takeaway from it that, that I think is, is part of what's historically important about it. Well, and I think there's also an element of proving yourself in those kind of movies too, where the entire Mumblecore movement was not just those filmmakers. It was so many more trying to do the same thing, but there's a reason we only talk about the Swanbergs and that entire camp versus the entirety, because there are a lot of Mumblecore movies that just ain't it. You know, it's the found footage thing to me where anyone can go in their backyard with a handheld camera or a VHS recorder, whatever you want to say, and like make a quote unquote found footage movie. But, you know, the ones that look the easiest to make, let's say the genres, the subgenres that look the easiest to make are often the hardest to stand out in. And I think like Mumblecore, Mumblecore fits that because I was talking to Brad Miska for a piece I wrote for IGN. And it's a piece about the state of streaming and horror right now and how horror as an industry has evolved with streaming. And like horror has always been popular. It's always been profitable. We know that horror has been one of the genres that has the biggest audience. And like streamers figured that out. And they just upped the demand for horror in a crazy degree. Like horror is just coming out so much more than it ever has. And I'm talking to Miska and he brought up a horrible way to die because he feels that on the back end, like, you know, what was this movie 2010 about? Yeah. So like 2010, 2011, when it came out, he's like to him, a horrible way to die is one of the last films that is like grassroots filmmaking. That is a filmmaker out there proving themselves with their own money, their own everything, like their own gumption. And, making themselves a commodity from the ground up like adam wingard made this movie and like became a commodity because of the work he put in how much hard work that took where like streamers today 
are giving out contracts for, you know, movies with much bigger budgets, much bigger everything. And they just need filmmakers to fill that slot. So it's like where the opportunity used to be in a movement like Mumblecore, where you can stand out and you can do things a certain way that will put you over like you know you you stand out in mumblecore you're going to put yourself over and have a have a future like that like streaming has almost negated that in a way where it's a little bit more of a quote-unquote fast track but in the same degree it doesn't have that longevity because how many streaming filmmakers do we actually know the names of versus the ones who made a name for themselves doing this stuff like this totally And, and i do think that like there's this um you know like uh uh ground up kind of message from it that 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 is still very relevant um but uh, but going from like you know Adam Wingard going from from horrible way to die to Godzilla is you know like as big a swing as you can do you know and with like you know stops at Death Note and the guest and on the along the way you know like that's that's crazy mm-hmm. you know um, whereas like I feel like the mumble core like stuff like the the stuff that's straight drama didn't redefine dramas in this in in the same way you know like it, it really went from like. Uh, you know that you know a lot of the like Joe Swanberg type stuff to like you know like crazy you know being kind of like the high watermark you know where it's like you win Sundance and then well we're kind of done with that and 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 then that whole like movement didn't really um, like it, you know like those guys you know haven't been redefining you know the 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 capital D drama scene the way that the the like you can trace a lot of what's going on in modern genre like studio genre movies back to movies like this and um, and that's uh, you know I think really interesting like you know like you know you can. Yeah, and, and and encouraging, you know, like um, because I do think there's mobility in genre in as as a filmmaker in ways that there isn't in other genres. We're talking about um, this movie being sort of a trendsetter and ahead of its time, and I want to talk a little bit about um, just the the general premise and the plot of the film too, because I think that you know this is if you look at this in in 2010, it's a it's a catchy like low like low effort kind of idea, right? This notion that there are these two characters. One is a killer, one is not, that are sort of on this collision course with each other across the country. You know, you're able to do to do a lot, to suggest a lot without having to necessarily show a lot. But I think one of the things that um, that Donato and I have talked a little bit about with regards to this film is the notion that this is this predates um, sort of the wave of true crime fanaticism that came out both in horror and, and outside of horror a little bit. And I think that, you know, it we've started to see films that that move with sort of a, a self-reflexiveness around this. I think of something like Man Bites Dog is is the kind of film that this is in a, in a category with in terms of like it is finding our obsession with true crime to be a little gross. And, and the characters in this movie themselves find the obsession with true crime to be a little bit gross. So, Tyler, talk a little bit about how you think this hits differently, if at all, in 2023 as opposed to it, it might have in 2010 or 2011. Yeah, I mean, there's something that kind of happened, I think, like as you know, and this is all very cynical of me, I guess, but like, you know, smartphones kind of like taking, taking hold, um, and, um, you know, really driving that, like, you know, uh, accessibility of media in a way that, that we, like, we all thought we had the world at our fingertips in 2007, but we didn't have any fucking idea, you know? And, um, and, uh, then like the relationship that, um, you know, the medium and the message have, have to, uh, truth has been, you know, that has been, you know, widening in a way and really kind of was, sort of put into overdrive, you know, with Trump and then COVID, you know, um, and, and so it's interesting to kind of, you know, really reframe like, um, you know, our relationship to, to, um, suffering, you know, like, and, and like how disassociating it is from, uh, you know, like being able to experience like, you know, genocide through, through a device 
and then just you know like uh, and then it, it, it you it's easy to lose track of the other people on the other side and um this is kind of uh you know uh has this kind of you know dark fandom uh, kind of element to it at a time when that was like this is before scream 4 you know this is before um you know all the all these like you know all the you know it was before my like my favorite murder you know like it's, it's before a lot of these things that that um like no one was really having those discussions you know like like i mean i, I think simon was picking up on something that was you know in the you know just just in the you know like in the general ethos of of, of like you know well hey serial killers get you know proposals you know like, like and just growing out of that in a in a logical you know way and it's almost a sci-fi kind of foresight you know like in in the in in a that sort of way and um it, it's it is interesting to see that being like what, what years this come out you know and 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 realize that they were onto some things that that um you know kind of only became irrelevant with time Denial, yeah, I think it, we've i'm sorry i was gonna say you you um we've talked a little bit on the show about about your dad's history as as a jersey police officer and sort of how this um plays in a field that that your family has a little bit of history with so i'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how this kind of reflects or, or shares some of the experiences that you've had maybe not so much growing up but but doubling back as an adult and kind of looking at some of the material there well yeah no, i was talking to uh when we did the live episode with larry and we covered the same movie this is the first I, time we've talked about this no no we, we can we can we can put that out there we did a live episode we talked to larry about this as well tyler gets to be canonized and he gets the episode Correct. online so don't worry <laughs> but you know i was talking to larry about this same thing because it's something that if I watched the movie in 2010, I wouldn't have keyed in on as hard because I, since 2010, I have read the book that was written about my dad's case. I have read the certain things that were said about me and my mother that like, obviously my dad would not bring home to us or let us ever know. But like I'm flipping the pages of this book, mama's boy. And like, it's, Oh, detective Donato's family had threats against her. And I'm just like, Oh shit. Like, okay. Like that's fun. Like I, I'm glad I never knew that. My dad was really good about keeping, his work life and his home life very separate. That is something that was like a hard, fast rule for him. Uh, he never wanted me to be a cop. He never wanted any of that stuff. But like, and I was going to be, even if, you know, like that was never a thing I was going to do anyway. I'm not going to put that out there. But what I honed on especially is you watch some a movie like A Hard Way to Die. And especially in a time pre-podcast, like true crime podcast, all that stuff, um, it's it seems far-fetched. It seems like something that is so out there and so vile and nasty and crazy how can this be reality but like i was e i was able like on a rewatch to go back and be like oh no like garrick's character like that is something that paralleled actually the case with my dad and like my dad was chasing a serial killer who wouldn't just do random murders and try to get away with it he was chasing a serial killer who would find basically immigrant women and he would marry them he would either have kids with them or they had kids already he would start lives with them and then he would kill them so like that was the depravity that existed in real fucking life. And he got away with it so many goddamn times before my dad finally caught him. And like my dad in conjunction with the FBI and other people, lots of people on the case, blah, blah, blah. But watching that and you're like Garrick, you know, it's the whole thing of like, oh, how could Garrick like be getting away with murders on like while having a significant other, all these things, like how could this be reality? How could this be a thing that's happening? And like, no, it is. And that's the terrifying part. Like I, Going back on it and just being knowing that Simon, you know, was able to key into those things that you were talking about and key into those things that are like, now, nah, like you're going to find out later on that this is something that can happen. You're going to hear a bunch of podcasts about even wilder shit. You're going to hear all this stuff. But like, again, like you said, Tyler, the sci fi ness of like, how did he predict all this stuff with this simple movie? It's fucking brilliant. 
And it doesn't it doesn't hurt that you're having your killer again be played by. I mean, the cast the cast is great, but like there is a part of me that doesn't understand um, why we we never quite got a character actor like upper echelons of Hollywood from AJ Bowen because he's just such a great presence on screen that can do so many different things as an actor. And I think you need something like that for for a role like this to kind of make it work. It's the it's the Zac Efron Ted Bundyness of it all. You need to like the guy in order to be like, oh fuck this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, and there's a lot of just like very, you know, good decisions happening, you know, like across the board here, like, you know, there's a, there's a nonlinear nature of it that builds mystery, you know, like, and that's, um, and you don't necessarily, the scenes are so simple that, that there's, there's no real, um, it's, you don't really have the problem of getting lost, you know, like, and, and, but they use it in ways that are like an intentional, like kind of casting people who look similar. So you're just like, wait a second, you know, like, and it, it it's in a way that's additive and also like a lot of very simple tricks. Like there's not a lot of directly on-screen violence, you know, like, like there's stuff that's like, you know, you see it in kind of longer lens kind of ways, which is um, simple to block, simple to shoot, uh, it feels real, you know, and, and it's, um, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, like very simply covered, you know, just a lot of things that save you time and save you money. Um, uh, but still allow you to, to make something chilling. And, and that's, um, you know, like on a formal level, I think it's, it, it's a success that, um, that, uh, people probably wrote off at the time as like, ah, it's just, you know, it's simple. And, and it's not, these are very clever decisions that are being made at, at the inception, you know? Yeah. And I want to ask you about, or Donato, go ahead. If you have a one of the simple things you can do is camera work. And one of the simple things I think that this movie does very well is replicate that idea of voyeurism because the movie is literally about a woman that thinks she's, whether the, it's true or not, thinks she's being followed. And the way the camera kind of lets you in on that and the way the camera, camera kind of like trails around and it feels like it's always watching her. And you don't know if that's replicating the fact that she is being watched or it's just Again, the paranoia in the back of her head. I, it, it's such a easy thing to do. The camera becomes first person. The camera becomes this or that, whether it's true or not. But, you know, it's something that other movies don't think about. And I think, uh, you know, Jackson Stewart brought, I believe the movie's called Entrance for his episode. And that was the same thing where it almost felt found footage-esque, even though it wasn't. And I was just a simple cinematography choice. But visual storytelling is so important. And, like, that's just one little decision to be like, all right, what if instead of framing this as a regular love scene, it's, well the camera's through the window for a little bit or the camera's over here or that it just feels icky. And like someone's always watching and big brothery and it's, it's a good technique. And it raises the question that I was going to ask Tyler, which is, you know, when this film came out, there weren't a ton of contemporary reviews, but the reviews that do exist, the ones that were written when it was on festival circuits and, and, you know, people were watching it on demand. Um, they were pretty critical of the cinematography, that thing that you hinted at earlier talking about, you know, sort of like the long take, the the hand cam kind of stuff that was that was in vogue and sort of stylistically how uh, a lot of mumble gore and mumble core was being made. Um, people, you know, and, and it kind of came at a point where there had been enough movies in the in the mid to early 2000s where this did not, you know, it wasn't it wasn't coming at the beginning of a movement uh, or, or a stylistic. This wasn't a you know, uh, born identity where it was kind of at the start of a mode where everybody kind of mimicked it. It came kind of in the middle or even at the end, Mm -hmm. um, which I think gave people a different level of appetite for that style of cinematography. But looking back on it now, Tyler, I'm curious, you know, do you think some of those criticisms were, were overplayed? Do you think that this movie, um, stands out even among sort of its, its contemporaries, or do you think it's a little bit more of, this is just the mode 
of filmmaking for these kind of films at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I definitely think it was sort of building on things that were it was seeing working and other things. But like again, it's like you know, give it a couple of years of not seeing this, and then and then give it a few more million dollars, and you put Adam Sandler in front, you got uncut gems. You know, I mean, like like it's the same. <laughs> Like, and it's like, oh man, long lenses and handheld, oh, brilliant choice. You know, like it's, you know, like when you're spending money, you know, like it, it, it all seems like, like it's intentional. Whereas when you have no money, it's all very intentional and no one seems to think it is. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, I think one of those, one of those things about, about this is, you know, I think it's very easy to, I mean, I would be the worst critic in the world. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I see, you know, value in, in everything and, um, you know, uh, I, yeah, so it, 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 it surprises me, you know, when I, and it kind of, it breaks my heart when you look at something like this, this, and I mean, I mean, I don't, there's no love lost between me and the IMDB rating system, but like, you know, seeing this at, you know, have like a 5.2 out of 10. I'm like, this movie is not a 5.2 out of 10. Like, like, you know, I think it's, it, it definitely, you know, even just the caliber of people involved, you know, you'll get more than, uh, uh more than that sort of worth out of it. And, um, you know, I, and you know that's why I'm glad you guys are doing this sort of thing, like where you're, where you're, you know, giving people opportunity to try and champion something that may have gone under the radar unduly. Yeah, and I mean, like, like it I, wouldn't have gone go to where it is without. Sorry, the, let's say the cast specifically, the cast and crew, like they wouldn't have gone to where they are without there being present talent. And I think like that's the biggest testament of a movie like this, where it itself is at the beginning of many careers. And we all know their careers now based on what they are. Like, you know, you're bringing up freaking like Godzilla and Kong movies and stuff. Like that's that's where they've gotten to. Mm -hmm. But to see where they all started, it's like that is telling of the quality of films they were making way back then. Like it's a whole thing of you don't need the budget. You don't need stuff like that. Like they didn't get quote unquote better because they got more money. It's just a different type of filmmaking because they did what they could at that period and like we shouldn't just throw that away because oh well they had no money and they had to do what they could do whatever now they're making bigger movies and that's what matters it's like no that's not what matters like we should actually go back and see the things that got them to where they are totally i mean you know hey guys check out piranha 2 you know like uh, yeah. uh, uh yeah, you yeah, know yeah. like uh go back and check that check that out you know and like you know i mean i'm, I'm constantly you know lending my dvd of bad taste to people um uh, you know and and it, it's uh it, it's helpful to see um what what the people you know um of for doing the big you know working on the big canvases um you know what they do with with nothing and you'll see the same voice you know like it's it's you know it's it's interesting to me um and i think that same is the same thing's true here well that brings us to our last question of the podcast um we always talk to our guests you've been through this before about how they think that the film is going to find an audience someday so tyler uh you were made king of hollywood after you're done canceling the rest of the HBO Max slate, what is your plan for finding distribution or finding a new audience for a horrible way to die? I mean, I, I do think that you could you could uh, you know drop this on a, on a major streamer, and 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 if you put it in the in the like you know promoted category as like new this week kind of thing, um, you know from you know like and use some other stuff, like I think it would do really well, um, you know, and and it, it is interesting to see like. Um, or to understand how much of the, of your movie the battle is won or lost on, on the on the marketing and publicity front, you know. I mean, I'm going through it right now with with um, with um, it's a wonderful knife. You know, just you know, it, it makes a ton of difference. You know, opening opening in you know almost a thousand theaters versus opening in fifty theaters, and uh, and that's just because it's available for people to watch. And and even if you um, 
you know aren't aren't spending the big big money on 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 the publicity side but like it you know it, there are little clever things that can be done to push things um but it does it does you know like there are a lot of movies that could do much better if they had regular support but they don't want like you know people don't want to risk that um the powers that be don't want to put that extra money in it because it's it, you know it often does cost more than the thing itself you know like <laughs> and and it would not take much to to blow past the production budget of a horrible way to die in order to get to get you know in in publicity cost and so that's uh um you know that's something that uh, uh you have to be kind of mindful of but i would definitely um you know i i i, I think you could easily um you know include this like in a major streamer in a in a very publicized way and have it you know do well and find a new audience you know we're seeing it all the time with stuff like suits like which was a hit at the time but like you know you put that in, in a different little spotlight on it and all of a sudden people are watching you know it's a, it's a massive hit again you know yeah. um and i think it just it speaks to quality like people who haven't seen stuff or want to revisit things will and, and i think this this has that type of quality where you know you, you could still kind of find it even you know the, today or five years from now or ten years from now Donato, what you got? Yeah, I mean, number one, I, I this is one of my funny little memories of becoming a horror fan uh, later in life and stuff like that. Because I, you know, I I rented this accidentally on Netflix because I wanted a lonely place to die, but I got a horrible way to die, and like that was how I first watched it. And it's so funny because I, I I adore them both. I actually really love a lonely place, but as a common moviegoer at the time, as a common let's say movie watcher who doesn't have that kind of knowledge that was deep rooted to me. Like I didn't even know the difference between those. I somehow ended up with one because I wanted the other. And I think that speaks to the general kind of engagement with, with horror and stuff like that in the mainstream, let's say. And we have these conversations. Of course we have these conversations like, yeah, hard way to die amongst our circles. It's all known. Like everyone talks about this movie. We know how good it is, but to what Tyler just said, like, it's harder for the general public to get their hands on movies like these. And especially something like a horrible way to die when it came out in 2010, when VOD was still the main mode for indie, you had to spend your five rental dollars or whatever it was. And a lot of people didn't trust it at the time because it's just what it was. It was a stigma. It was all these things. We talk about it all the time. So for a horrible way to die, like, yeah, it just needs placement somewhere front and center and tie that to where those careers have gotten to now. I think that is, that is the way of like, you can tie it to some other true crime films. You can tie it to some other, you know, horror films that have done this theme before. Uh, like, you know, like Halloween starts with podcasters who were shitty doing this kind of same thing, like like exploiting the the trials of somebody else and exploiting horror, like this horrible scenario for their own benefit. So you can tie it to movies like that. But I think it's as easy as saying, hey, Adam Wingard made this movie and look at what he's done since then. Like, go back and relive some history. Go back and see where it all started. I think that's probably the easiest selling point now for the general public uh, because we just need to, to make it easier for them to watch movies and give them a reason to watch it. And unfortunately that's streamers right now. So plop it on somewhere, give it the right promotion, actually just put it out there and let it have the release it deserved when it came out. Simple. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is that I think the history of Mumblegore has yet to be written. I think that it is a movement of film that we're going to take a lot of time looking at over the next couple of years. I think there are a few filmmakers that are clearly going to be like the Thai Wests of, of the, the medium or like when we talk about mumble gore, it'll be anchored around them. But just like, you know, there are 20 years of zombie movies that we're looking at and some of them are going to withstand the test of time and some of them aren't. Um, not every there's 50 plus movies I'm looking at on, on Wikipedia that are 
not, very loose categorization of what Mumblecore could be. Dating up to 2022, which feels wrong. But when we go through and start digging into this a little bit more, um, I'm not going to say that, that some movies will be good and bad, but I think some movies will will rediscover and will put on a higher shelf um, and we'll say, wait, we were wrong about this one. We need to we need to talk about it a little bit more. Um, and I think for all the reasons that both of you mentioned, but Donato in particular talking about the wing, wing guardness of it all, I think this one stands a really good chance at, at standing out in the long run. So. There's a piece. There's a piece in me now just talking about this stuff. That's like why your next is the perfect representation of the best of mumble, mumble gore and just go off of how like that entire cast is literally they are the keys to mumble gore. Like they're the ones that kind of brought that genre into where it was or subgenre, what are you going to call it? They're the ones that like took that over and brought it to where it was. And yeah. maybe I'm going to write that someday. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's the piece that, uh, Hey, I mean, touting. You know, b- both of you guys are writers and could could easily, you know, write this this mumble gore retrospective, you know, piece that everyone's been craving. I'm just throwing that out there, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, you you got the power, you know, you got the connections, you got the knowledge, you know, time and this economy. <laughs> Donato, uh, I would uh, you, you are more than welcome to pitch certifiedforgotten.com with this essay. We cannot pay you. <laughs> Um, however, <laughs> that's fine because we've agreed that you're not one of the people we pay. So it all that is out. totally fair. Yes, I, I have signed up for that. I understand. The slave labor mean. approach, not unlike Mumblegore itself. Yeah, we're yeah. we're bad at being business people. We're not making it's any of the profits. Terrible. We're 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 I don't know. It's it's a good place to be in capitalism. Tyler, it was super fucking great to have you back on the show. Um, I know we've talked at length about what you have going on, but I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, to tout where folks can look for the film when it hits shutter and maybe anything else uh, you encourage folks to look at work that you've done or things that you've been involved in that don't have your name as a director, but projects around the holiday season you're proud of and you want people to seek out. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's been a busy year. I mean, I've, I've, I'm fortunate to have, uh, you know, it's a wonderful knife coming out uh, November 10th in theaters, uh, which will be long after or uh, long gone by the time this, uh, this, this comes out, but then hitting shutter, uh, you know, in December and, um, you know, and, and uh, Five Nights at Freddy's, you know, like we, we had a hand in, in, uh, in the, the script side for that. And, um, you know, I'm happy that people are connecting with it, you know. So um, if you have uh, kids or, you know, you just love Chuck E. Cheese or hate Chuck E. Cheese, really, just check it out. Um, you know, uh, or, or actually, maybe I'm not allowed to say that, but, um, you know, like or uh, children's entertainment, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, ch- check that check that out. Um, um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, like I was, you know, um, expecting this to be a lot more contentious, Monocle. Um, you know, I'm a little disappointed. I'm sorry. I, I trust me, nobody is more disheartened that I really enjoyed your movie than me. Uh, it really throws our whole relationship a little bit out of whack, but we'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was really, really hoping that that it would just be like another sort of patchwork situation or something. But, um, but, or that we just wouldn't see eye to eye on a horrible way to die. You'd just be like, I just, don't, I disagree that. You know, but you came in with all hard with all this like mumble gore knowledge and it just it won me over. Yeah, I don't know. We might need to retire the uh, the adversary shtick at some point, but I'm going to make you make one more movie before we determine that for sure. So your next film, that'll be the one that makes or breaks it. All right. Well, there's a lot of pressure. I, I'm, I'm into it. Uh, Donato, uh, you have a lot in your pipeline right now. Where do folks go to follow you on social media and talk about some of the stuff you might be coming up with? Um, you can follow me on social media on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and TikTok, and Blue Sky adds not a bomb. I'm the same everywhere. Uh, I've like haven't really been using social media for the last like month. I'm just fucking burned out. I just on everything. It's just 
I need to get my get my sea legs back under me, figure things out. I only have like three reviews booked this month, which is great because I needed some time to myself. But one of them is a John Woo movie because we don't let those go by us. In any case, you can look for my writing. You can look for all my random musings at Donatabomb on all those places I said. And uh, Monocle, go ahead and tee yourself in and serve out of God. Yes, I will. Thank you. And I do have to say, you don't get to see it behind the screens at all, but uh, Donato and I managed to stagger our burnout so that not we're never both burned out at the exact same time, which means the site, like one of us is always emotionally invested in the success of Certified Forgotten as the other one is ready to like run off to the hills of, of uh, Canada and never be seen from again. That is hilariously true, actually. Like I didn't even think about that, we're but like we do that. go through our moments at alternating periods. Like we're very good at that. Yeah, it's, it's really the reason why the site still works. You can follow me on Blue Sky. It's monogle.theblueSky chart string code, whatever it's called. I can't remember. Um, that's pretty much where I am. Uh, Twitter's awful. God damn, it's so bad. Uh, but you can follow Certified Forgotten on all of the social media platforms. Certified Forgot is the handle. And you can check out our website, certifiedforgotten.com, or visit our Substack. We recently launched that to make it easier because Certified Forgotten Twitter and all the other platforms are bad. We kind of we try our best to bring our new articles to you, put them right in your mailbox, makes shit easy. So follow us on Substack, read the website, check out what awesome writers and and what awesome uh, essays that do kind of the same stuff we did today. Go find some movies that fell through the cracks and and need a champion and found a champion. So that's it for us. Tyler, I I have a very uh, sneaking suspicion this is not your last appearance on the podcast. So I'm not going to say goodbye. I'm going to say till next time. Till next time it is. Donato, take us home. This is not a fun movie and I have nothing funny to say. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) 